Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman, filling in for the indefatigable Alan Ruff and hoping, trying to fill his big shoes this hour. Thanks for joining me. On April 10th, 1998, the world saw, for the most part, an end to conflict in Northern Ireland with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in Belfast. Put simply, the agreement established a power-sharing government in Northern Ireland where those who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom and those who wanted a united Ireland would have a say in how the region was governed. That agreement turned 25 this month. With some distance from decades of conflict termed the Troubles, What's the status of the north of Ireland now? And what can this tell us about the complicated, messy part of national identity and conflict? Well, joining me today is Dr. Kara Dempsey, Associate Professor of Geography and Planning at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. There, she studies political and cultural geography with a focus on nationalism, sectarian conflict, and reconciliation. She's the former director of Irish Studies at DePaul University and received her PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of a new book titled An Introduction to the Geopolitics of Conflict, Nationalism, and Reconciliation in Ireland, published recently by Rutledge Press, and she joins me now in the studio. Welcome, Dr. Dempsey. Thank you. I'm really uh, grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you. We're also grateful to have you here in Madison. <laughs> well, uh, it's great to have an expert to talk uh, about this 25-year anniversary. So let's start off there with that uh, with that kind of news this month. What did the Good Friday Agreement do when it was signed in 1998, and what didn't that do? Uh, great. Yes. Um, it's truly a significant moment to celebrate an anniversary of what some people called a masterstroke of international cooperation for peace, in which a fragile peace has been maintained for 25 years. And as U.S. Senator George Mitchell, who chaired the peace talks in the 90s, stated at the anniversary ceremonies last week, it was an agreement that was decades in the making. So if you don't mind, um, to help us understand why it's so significant and what it did, it may help to sketch out some of the key historic uh, events that led to the agreement. Is that okay if I briefly do that? There's so much history yeah. here, but yes, please summarize and help us get a, a help us grapple with who yeah. was um, fighting with each other. Okay, great. So obviously there's a long history of Irish nationalism on the island of Ireland, but the 1916 rising is commonly considered the beginning stage of a violent campaign for independence against British colonial rule of the island of Ireland. Now, why the island's uh, rising was not successful, it is significant for several reasons, and one of which included Britain's response, which included executing some of the rising's leaders. And this action horrified much of the Irish public and contributed to strengthening popular support for what is called Irish republicanism. And I can speak more about this, but this has nothing to do with um, the U.S.'s GOP. Um, instead, Irish republicanism is a demand for an independent republic that this demand was not predominantly supported by the Irish public prior to the execution of the Rising's leaders. And growing demands for independence resulted in the Irish War of Independence, also known as the Anglo-Irish War, that uh, occurred from 1919 to 1921, and significantly ended with a very controversial Anglo-Irish Treaty. And this eventually um, also saw the eventual official partitioning of Ireland, in which 26 of the entire 32 counties on the island of Ireland 
accepted the conditions of an autonomous but not independent status known as the Irish Free State. And I always say that that's a misnomer um, in hopes of ultimately achieving an independent republic. And much of the island of Ireland did become a republic, as we know, the Republic of Ireland in 1948. But the remaining six counties located in the north western part of the island, um, which maintained a so-called British or Protestant um, landowning majority. And the earliest origins of that can go all the way back to what was known as the Ulster plantations in the 17th century. Um, Many elected to leave the predominantly Catholic Irish Free State and form what is known today as Northern Ireland as a constitutive part of the UK, like Wales, Scotland and England. So when Northern Ireland was established in 1922, it was politically controlled by Protestant Unionists who opposed the idea of a Catholic-ruled Ireland. And I do want to mention that during this time, the term of um, Irish Catholics and British Protestants were really normalized, um, despite the presence of great diversity within the region. And increasingly today in Northern Ireland, uh, many individuals reject those so-called binary categories of Catholic or Protestant. um, And many are beginning to reject even the religious element of the category. And if they do affiliate with one, It's for cultural or heritage reasons and not necessarily religious. So the terms have become very complex and messy in and of themselves. And that's also the case with political affiliations in Ireland. So as uh, in in Northern Ireland in particular, um, as I mentioned before, Irish Republicanism is very different than the Republican Party in the U.S. because Irish Republicanism is the desire for a united Ireland on the island of Ireland. And politically, um, a lot of Irish Republicans are socialists and sometimes even anarchists. Um, Similarly, regarding demands or hopes for a united Ireland, um, Irish nationalists would like that, but they're less radical than Republicans. So both Irish and nationalists are commonly labeled as Catholics, whether or not that's a religious um, truth for people today. On the other hand, those that want to maintain Northern Ireland as part of the UK, like Wales, Scotland, and England, um, individuals are called unionists, and the more radical groups are called loyalists. And historically, these were considered Protestant, but again, these lines continue to be blurry um, and much more messy, even today, because, for instance, there are some so-called Catholic Unionists that prefer to maintain Northern Ireland because, say, they prefer the strength of the British pound versus the republics, mm-hmm. which is using the EU euro, or some people prefer the British healthcare system, for instance. So there's, there's um, a much blurrier realm to what is the reality of life today. So while these categories may be ubiquitous, I always um, remind, uh, particularly if I'm leading study abroad students, um, they're neither homogeneous and they're certainly not universal. So I'd like to just kind of remind people that in many ways it was the politicians, the paramilitary and the religious leaders that really championed and fomented sectarianism in Northern Ireland, uh, particularly within the working class, uh, for example, as a way to break unions um, or to gain power in society. So in 1922, the newly formed um, Northern Ireland was unionist controlled uh, and its regional parliament in Northern Ireland um, considered Catholics. So that would be nationalists and Republicans as the enemy within Northern Ireland. And the subsequent systematic discrimination against Catholics was profound. And when civil rights marches to end Catholic discrimination, which um, was modeled after the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the U.S., um, even some of the marches, um, the NICRA, Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, uh, modeled their marches after Dr. Martin Luther King's March to Selma, for instance. Um, And when these uh, marches were attacked, tensions in the region erupted into a particularly violent period that many have heard of known as the Troubles. And the dates are murky as well, but it's usually considered 1969 till 1998, the peace agreement, even though we have seen violence after the peace agreement was signed. Um, But during the Troubles, we saw a marked increase in paramilitary, 
police, and British military violence in Northern Ireland. The British military was actually deployed um, to Northern Ireland during this time. The other really important thing to kind of point out, and this ties into discussions of Brexit and and the Windsor framework, which we've seen recently, is the border in Ireland during the Troubles became hardened and militarized. And that not only fostered, of course, physical, political bordering, but social bordering and creation of categories, whether it's the us and them or foreign and local, in ways that did not previously exist. People would travel um, across this area before this um, very rigid hard border. And other things that we saw during the Troubles is, um, within Northern Ireland in particular, residential attacks created stark residential segregation in certain rural communities, and perhaps famously in parts of northwest Belfast, the capital, and in cities that um, have a dual name um, known as Stroke City, so Derry or Londonderry, so same city, different names, Mm -hmm. um, where some still, these neighborhoods remain enclaved. And in the case of places like Belfast, for instance, in the northwestern part, um, these people remain enclaved um, behind so-called peace walls today. These peace walls are similar to what you see in Israel and Palestine. Um, and exist in Northern Ireland today, and in several cases, um, divide neighborhoods, and they're several stories high. Um, So to achieve the peace in this divided and violent society, um, the long and arduous work uh, took an incredibly long period of time and included secret meetings um, between Irish moderate political leader um, and actually shared the, the... the Nobel Prize for Peace, um, nationalist leader of the SDLP or the Socialist Democrat Labor Party. So that's um, an Irish nationalist, so not Republican, but Irish nationalist and the political wing of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army paramilitary um, group. Um, The political branch of that is Sinn Féin and meetings um, with the leader, Jerry Adams. And that happened in secret. They were sworn enemies. And yet um, that was so significant because as many believed, in order to achieve peace, talks had to bring in the radical Republicans. Mm -hmm. And the other great change that happened at the time is politicians, other politicians began to focus on peace. So when British Prime Minister Tony Blair was elected in 1987, he vowed to prioritize Northern Ireland. That was rare. Uh, Bill Clinton, of course, in the U.S., made campaign promises in New York in 1992 to focus on peace building in Northern Ireland. And he followed up on that. So he helped break the British media ban of Republicans, Irish Republicans, uh, in the UK when he very controversially invited Sinn Féin's Jerry Adams in 1994 yeah. to speak with him in the US. That was very controversial. Um, prior to this, really, one of the only ways Irish Republicans could spread messages under the British media ban was through strategically located murals that could be filmed in the back of of news feeds, for instance. Um, And Clinton also pointed Senator George Mitchell that I mentioned earlier in 1995 to work for Northern Irish Peace. And uh, Mitchell um, ends up moderating the peace talks in April of 1998. So ultimately, after an enormous um, effort, an enormous period of time, and what Mitchell said was about 700 days of failed peace in one day that succeeded, two governments and eight political parties met for days of negotiation and successfully were able to sign the agreement um, in April 10th, which Mitchell calls an imperfect treaty, um, but one that brought stability. So to kind of go back to your question of what the Good Friday uh, Peace Agreement, also known as the Belfast Agreement, again, the dual names, um, did, it it did numerous things, but I'll kind of point out um, some of those uh, key things. So um, we see the uh, creation of some north-south governing bodies, um, north meaning Northern Ireland, south meaning the Republic, even though geographically places like Donegal uh, in the Republic of Ireland um, are North as well, that that's kind of the common term. Um, significantly, the uh, agreement created a power-sharing regional government in Northern Ireland called the Northern Ireland Assembly, but it's commonly known as Stormont. Um, and what's really important is that must compromise, com- um, comprise both unionist 
and Republicans. Um, so what's so significant is rivals must work together to form a government. Um, unfortunately, currently, that means Stormont hasn't met for over a year because the Unionist Loyalist Party, the DUP, um, has refused to take their elected seats. And and even Windsor Framework discusses um, a part of that. And Biden's recent trip um, into Belfast uh, makes reference to that. So we certainly can talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, another significant thing it did um, is for Northern Irish citizens is regarding concepts of identity. It acknowledged that citizens may be Irish, British, or both, so they can hold passports. And this became very complicated with Brexit because certain people in Northern Ireland are Northern Irish citizens and hold a Republic of Ireland passport. And all of a sudden, Brexit becomes very complicated. Um, But what was so significant, of course, is the EU helped facilitate this peace. Um, It helped demilitarize the border because even though the UK had opted out of the common border EU policy, so the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which Republic was in the EU and at the time so was Northern Ireland's part of the UK, um, the border should have been some form of hard border between opted out of the EU's common border, the EU helped to soften that border. And so it's what we see in the United States if you're driving between um, Wisconsin and Michigan, um, or or, excuse me, um, Minnesota, um, where you see kind of just the welcome to, you know, uh, Minnesota. Um, And so that's really significant um, because the EU departure from Brexit really threatened that that border in the peace process. Um, And one of the things people really talk about uh, in the UK now is there's a push for what they call the great repeal, where they want to repeal any EU laws in the UK um, that would have um, occurred from 1973 when they joined to contemporary times. But that's not going to apply in Northern Ireland. So we start to have these very complex elements um, kind of coming to the forefront. Um, Another key thing uh, is it uh, included the consent principle in Northern Ireland. So it ensures that citizens of Northern Ireland will not become part of the republic unless they vote. So it's it's a vote by the people. That was a big concern. and then decommissioning uh, of arms. Wow. Okay. So Dr. Kara Dumpsey laying it all out, contemporary um, Irish history in the past more than 100 years. Um, and, you know, we are talking about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, the Belfast Agreement, and recent history of Northern Ireland. Something else. So you, you started out um, in... Uh, 1916 with the Easter Rising. Another anniversary I just want to mention here is that the Easter Rising happened in April 24th through the 29th, Mm -hmm. and it's April 28th, so we're also in that time period. So I can't do quick math, but that's like 107 Mm -hmm. years. Yeah, yeah. they basically talk about, uh, you know, over 100 years. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So this has been going on for a long time, Mm -hmm. but I think the significance, if we had to sum, and thank you for that Mm -hmm. explanation, I think this is a conflict that many in the United States don't really understand. And Mm -hmm. it's extremely confusing um, because we don't live there. Um, But but that was that was very helpful. Um, So let's just talk a little bit more about anniversary celebrations Mm -hmm. this month. Um, You know, you mentioned that President Biden was in Ireland Mm -hmm. earlier this month. How was this received by the international community? Is it is this Belfast agreement still holding up for the most part? You mentioned a little bit of contention Mm -hmm. um, where maybe all of the the kinks haven't been quite worked out. Right. Yeah. Well, so what was um, really significant about Biden, um, he certainly has in his um, uh, public addresses played up his Irish American heritage. Um, And so, of course, that resonates with a lot of people not all um, in Northern Ireland, and it sort of strengthened um, his so-called validation for being involved. Um, During the celebration that uh, occurred last week, um, the Clintons were there. Uh, George Mitchell um, had also traveled uh, to Belfast, um, and and Biden was there as well. And so um, America is adding to this, um, I would argue, 
international interest to maintain peace in an area that had seen violence for such a long period of time. Um, And one thing that people really have talked about is um, the war in Ukraine has actually strengthened the call to protect the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement because during Brexit, there was this big question um, under, for instance, Boris Johnson that really threatened the peace and the border, um, the, the demilitarized border. And the, the current prime minister um, of the UK has basically seen Northern Ireland as something that needs to be addressed and the peace to be protected so that the focus can now be on how do we deal with the war in Ukraine. Wow. And so the US and the EU and the UK are kind of seeing this anniversary as an opportunity to publicly declare their support for peace in a moment where, of course, we see, you know, the war in Ukraine. It is 1227. You're listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Shelley Pittman, and we are speaking with Professor Kara Dempsey, author of a new book on conflict, nationalism, and reconciliation in Northern Ireland on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Hey, we are taking your calls this hour. Call us, 608-256-2001. Ralph is here to transfer you to the studio, and we have an expert here in Irish studies and conflict in Northern Ireland who can answer them. Um, So please do call us, 608-256-2001. So uh, another thing, another question I have, I have endless questions for you, Kara. I'm trying to fit them all in. (laughs) But uh, another more contemporary development, even after the Good Friday Agreement, you mentioned that the IRA, the the uh, Irish Republican mm-hmm. Army, right? Correct. Yep, was involved in the Good Friday Agreement, but only as recently as 2005 mm-hmm. did they formally announce an end to armed conflict. This paramilitary group. Can you tell us more about that? I mean, that's not that long ago. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, just to clarify. And this is where it gets quite controversial. The political party that was involved is the political party that is affiliated with the IRA. So the IRA is considered an illegal paramilitary organization of Republicans, Irish Republican Army. So the political party that speaks for the IRA is Sinn Féin. And so Sinn Féin was, of course, brought into the peace talks in 1998, um, which, of course, was very controversial, but many people believed necessary um, and part of the reason why that peace actually worked. Um, So the, the decommissioning that happened took an extremely long period of time. And so, um, some people say it was the Elliskin, uh, Elliskin bombing of um, 1987 that really prompted the need to decommission. Um, and the um, IRA and Sinn Féin had really dragged their feet on decommissioning, which was um, obviously so contentious. And actually the reason that the DUP, so that's the unionist, uh, loyalist political party that um, is opposing the Windsor framework today, but also um, one of the uh, main political parties in Northern Ireland that did not participate in the peace agreement in 1998 because of the decommissioning, the the fact that the Republicans dragged their feet on the decommissioning. And so it happened gradually. Um, We saw efforts in earnest starting in about 2000 and it took until 2005 for the official decoration um, to occur and and you're right it wasn't that recently um, and in some cases uh, they would send international individuals to check to see if this is happening and they had seven surface um, to air missiles so this wow. was a s- significant um, decommissioning that happened yeah. And, you know, after consuming some popular media mm-hmm. about um, the troubles and kind of mm-hmm. the end to most conflict, um, I was just kind of struck by the incredible level of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you spoke to hundred and over 150 people for this mm-hmm. book, and I'm really interested in what they told you and the, the, even the importance of oral history in the present mm-hmm. moment. moment. Um, I can't imagine walking down the street and... Um, 
you know, cars blowing up, mm. right, uh, after being planted. And I know it's much more complicated than that again, right. but um, what were the pr- perspectives of the people you interviewed over mm-hmm. this arc of history? Um, what were some of the common themes of what they remembered and what, what they think the situation is now? Yeah, and that's such a great question to bring up. And this is where I pull on my um, my specific field as a geographer. Um, we really highlight that there are what we call spatial temporal elements that we need to um, acknowledge. So there is no, obviously, universal experience. And so that's why I tried to conduct so many interviews with various individuals. And and I'd like to point out that, of course, I did not intend these interviews to demonstrate a homogenous representation of um, individuals in Ireland, but to highlight some key narratives and experiences. And of course, geographic location very much influence how how people um, experience the the troubles. And obviously, age, generational. So yeah. for those, um, you were you were talking about trauma, for those that lived through it and experienced it, um, it was really important for me. Um, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to interview famous politicians, powerful figures in society, peace advocates. But I also wanted to elevate the voices of the public um, and particularly the disenfranchised. So individuals that lived in those very... Um, uh, combative um, uh, enclaves. Yeah, so those those enclaved neighborhoods um, in the secondary sectarian neighborhoods, and they still struggle with the trauma. It's really interesting. Um, I was doing interviews um, even just a couple of years ago, and one of the things they kept bringing up is that there is no justice for their loved ones that have um, that were killed in a drive by shooting or a mm-hmm. bombing because they never figured out what was happening, and really struggling with that inability or trying to let go um, of the the trauma. And um, even peace workers talk about how their approach to peace is very different based on one's, of course, experience, but age. Um, Because if you lived through the troubles, you're you're really going to um, frame things differently. And, And one of the last things I wanted to highlight in the book was how individuals perspective change over time because i would of course ask them to speak about their experiences but then say have you felt um, a change in your own perspective and how things have changed Um, have they improved Uh, are they worse are are you seeing things in a different light and so i think that's really significant to remind us of our own experiences interpretations change over time out of curiosity, for the folks who were disappeared, there are still ongoing investigations into some of that, right? Or was that ended? So that's part of the controversy, uh, is part of the agreement was whether or not they were going to allow that to happen. Um, and another thing that really upsets individuals, uh, in some cases, is part of the agreement was to release all political prisoners. And so some people say, well, those were guaranteed to be murderers that may have been the individual that killed my loved one. Why are they walking on the street? And the answer is, in order for that agreement to happen, that was a key element, say, for the Republicans or uh, loyalists, for instance. So there were over a thousand political prisoners released as part of the agreement. So um, all adding to that messiness regarding, you know, the emotional impact uh, of of this very fragile and, and imperfect piece. Yeah. And yeah. you mentioned um, Jerry Adams, mm-hmm. the head of Sinn Féin, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he had kind of split ties with the IRA uh, publicly, mm-hmm. but even there there have been emerging investigations into his role and yes. the disappearance of, um, what is her name, Jean McCurdy, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. Right? So yeah. these things are ongoing. And, you know, yes. he's getting up there in age. Yes. But um, the, 25 years is not a lot of time. Yes. So... I am curious about the significance of this moment, where mm-hmm. we are right now, 25 years later, um, especially because so many who participated or lived through the troubles are, are still around today. But I'm also curious about generational attitudes mm-hmm. after the troubles. What yeah. what does Gen Z say yeah. about this? Yeah, that's a great question, because, again, forgive the geography, the, the spatial <laughs> temporal difference and particularly space. Um, If it's someone who lives in an area where much of Northern Ireland indeed lives in what people call an everyday peace, um, it's much less pressing. Um, Categories are becoming 
um, more hybridized in the Gen Z community. Um, There is evidence to suggest that some of the Gen Z population, uh, regardless of Brexit, would identify as European and say maybe British, but Northern Irish versus British and not Irish. And and so these categories are becoming more hybridized. It's less of a problem, uh, less, less of an issue, less of a heartache for Gen Z, with the exception of some of these enclave communities. So when I've done um, research in these areas, I've worked with peace advocates over the years. I bring study abroad trips there. I've done volunteering myself. And one of the things that peace advocates in these neighborhoods will say is, oh, I'm from a certain part of Northern Ireland that enjoyed that everyday peace. I moved in, I took this job, I'm, I'm working in this Northwestern com- cross-community building center. And they always say, like, I'm shocked by how sectarianism and hatred is taught to youth that didn't experience the troubles. They're taught to hate. And they attend segregated schools. They have sc- segregated um clubs, sports, um, in many cases. And so there is this continued division in certain parts of Northern Ireland. So I would say, in general, there's, there is a generational difference, um, unless you're in one of these really enclaved areas where you're sort of indoctrinated into that narrative. And what are some of those areas? Are there specific cities? Yes. So um, the the famous ones will be parts of, say, Belfast, so northwestern Belfast. Um, it's not always the case, but usually you see a correlation with the less economically mobile. Um, so northwestern Belfast, for instance, versus the downtown center of Belfast, which has become very gentrified, very tourist-friendly, um, l- lovely. Uh, northwestern Belfast is where you see those peace walls, the, the highly political murals. Um, the city of uh, Derry, Londonderry, for the most part, is quite segregated. There are rural communities that are completely segregated um, that really haven't been able to come back uh, and and incorporate since the the troubles really increased um, segregation. We're talking about the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and uh, what it's like now in Northern Ireland. And we're speaking with Professor Kara Dempsey, author of a new book on conflict, nationalism and reconciliation. Hey, we're taking your calls. Call us 608-256-2001. Ralph, We'll pass it on mm-hmm. and ask ask our guest a question here in the you know twenty two minutes we have remaining. So you mentioned a lot of things, Kara, um, in your response to that that I want to ask about. One is uh, within these enclaved communities, there are even opportunities for kind of cross cultural mm-hmm. exchange, and there are people there, peace advocates, mm-hmm. trying to do the work of. Um, of these shared spaces. Mm -hmm. So tell us about some of your research in these areas that are enclave, that are, um, I think I saw the word apartheid almost, right? Yes. Um, But it's a community center where people can actually, from different political perspectives, Mm -hmm. exchange. So give us an example. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thanks so much for that question because this is something, of course, I'm very passionate about is the the peace building and and inspired by the individuals that have, have made such great inroads. Because within Northern Ireland, there is some evidence to suggest what we call the top-down peace building, meaning um, a, a large national government um, telling an area, you know, integrate, have not been quite successful. But what we have seen is local grassroots cross-community peace building organizations really make some excellent inroads into the local community. And a lot of that is empowering the local community, addressing local needs, and really advocating for that community and celebrating their own agency. And so uh, in the book, one of the um, groups that I focus on is called 174 Trust in Northwest Belfast. And the name is essentially its address. Um, That's where it comes from. (laughs) But um, what's interesting is it's a it's a shared space um and it's an area where uh the concept of peace itself is picked apart in a great way in in such a way that um the director uh who is a protestant minister reverend bill shaw but he just goes by bill um (laughs) was sent in to basically initially convert 
um, Catholics to Protestantism. And he got in and realized very quickly his mission was to help the community and bring them together. And so what he did is he used the funding he had and the, the, the space, this lovely um, building. It, it used to be a church, then it had been um, converted into a warehouse. And he went door to door in these divided communities, geographically right next to one another, um, contiguous, but completely divided, um, and said, what do you need? And so these are very, in, in this particular neighborhood, um, economically challenged conditions, housing is a concern, economic opportunities are a concern, safety and, and fear um, is a common narrative. And so what started um, uh, was supporting the community, but he was very strategic and said, I will be happy to uh, allow you to have the space for free, but you have to have a balance and I really want you to focus on something else as the challenge, not each other. So he started, which I think was um, not only classic for uh, a church, but um, brilliant, was um, hosting AA meetings because mm. the evil other is not the person next to you, but the disease, the addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and so we will work together to overcome these challenges that we face. And then the next thing he did was um, offer space for parents of children who have different mobility or educational needs. And so again, it's not the parent of in the, the other neighborhood that's the evil other or the villain or the opposition. It's the challenges or the structural differences in communities that um, are challenging their, their children's um, chance at, at fulfillment, right? Um, and then he started developing things like mixed soccer teams mm. um, and really used those as teachable moments. So he bought a minibus and would pick kids up from uh, divided communities because it was not only fast but a safe way uh, to drive them around. But then he said, I would use it as teachable moments. We'd go into these enclaves and look at the murals and say, which one of your mates in the bus feels frightened by that message and why and what can you do to make your mate feel comfortable and safe and so this idea of empowering um, the local community and in a local way he's been so successful that he actually received the OBE so the Order of the British Empire by the Queen um, obviously no longer with us um, for his peace work and so uh, this idea of really kind of um, empowering those to come together. That's incredible. And I feel like we could learn a lot from that uh, healthy relationships mm -hmm. and developing, um, interacting with each other. I think that's somewhat universal mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in improving. Hey, um, we are taking calls at 608-256-2001. Um, call up Ralph and he'll pass you to Jade and Jade will pass you to me. Uh, but we do have a caller on the line. Steve is on the line with a comment about uh, history around the time of World War One. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, hi, Shelley, and uh, thank you, Ms. Dempsey, for your wonderfully informed and succinct review of this historically important epoch. I wish to uh, insert a reminder to listener students that the 1916 Rising occurred during the British Empire-fomented First World War, mm -hmm. that London's suppression of the Rising is symptomatic of the growth of the national security state in the U.K. as well as the U.S., and that the brutality of the English black and tan forces against the Irish nationalists was bred specifically by these men's experiences in the uh, trench warfare on the Western Front in, in, in France. And finally, I, I just wish to uh, insert a mention of a dramatic film from 2006, The Wind That Shakes the mm -hmm. Barley, yeah, Killian as Murphy. a quality entertainment depicting uh, this period of the 1920s. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you, Steve. I would count on you to know about this period of history as well. Uh, Dr. Dempsey, do you have a response to Steve? Oh, um, just needless to say, um, 1916 was a very important year, right in the middle of uh, the Great War, World War uh, One, of course. Um, controversial for very many reasons. And um, really what we were seeing um, regarding the changing of the Irish heart um, reflects a lot of that as well um, because the emphasis of the other um, uh, many of the Irish um, were overseas in trenches uh, at the time 
um, when the 1916 Rising occurred. And there's a lot of controversy up until very recently um, in the Republic of Ireland regarding how or if they were even going to acknowledge their involvement um, fighting under the British crown as part of World War One, And it's really recently that they've started to, and this is kind of to use the academic term, re-remember uh, their inclusion in World War One. So recently the government has started to encourage people to go back into historic family letters, for instance, and, and you know, honor those that were involved. Now that's in the Republic. In Northern Ireland, it's really divided. Um, in the case of the Unionists and Loyalists in particular, they celebrate specifically World War I um, and particularly the losses they suffered in the Battle of the Somme. You'll see that in a lot of the murals um, as proof of their dedication to the United Kingdom. Um, and so not only is there this violence in this history, but um, uh, the caller, I believe Steve, mm-hmm. uh, mentioned the Black and Tans, very, very controversial group um, and and certainly trained um, in, in various places and um, loathed it within the Irish memory as well. And so so who are the Black and Tans? So the Black and Tans, without getting um, in, in uh, extremely in-depth situations um, or descriptions, are really... Um, some people would say an elite um, political group that was sent in uh, and were notoriously aggressive against um, the Irish citizenship. And in mm-hmm. fact, uh, one of the things I, I tell tourists, if you're going to travel to Northern Ireland, be careful with what you say um, and and don't do something uh, like go to a bar and try to order the drink uh, black and tan because that's that's quite controversial. It's, it's a wow. very... Uh, historically violent group of individuals. Wow. Well, thank you for the tip. Mm -hmm. We'll not do that. Um, Steve also mentioned a film from 2006. It's called The Wind Wind That that Shakes the the Barley. Barley. Yes. I've never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. Do you have, sounds like you've seen it. Sure. It's a classic. Okay. Uh, I'm familiar with Belfast that came out in 2021. Yes. Um, Do you want to just take a second to talk about all of the popular media that's emerged? I'm a huge fan of Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah. But there's so much that's sprung up. Right. So right. is there any example you'd like to share? Well, maybe what I'll do is quickly acknowledge that we are very fortunate that both in the Republic and even in Northern Ireland, um, there's a tremendous emphasis on the film industry. And so we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of different Um, film and stories that have come out to really, particularly from an American audience, give us some perspective into what happened. And obviously it's going to be from a particular perspective. Uh, Wind That Shakes the Barley is an excellent example of um, that period of time and and rolls into what was known as the Irish Civil War. Um, Obviously many things going on there, but the Irish Civil War is when Irish Republicans turned on themselves regarding whether they should have accepted that controversial Anglo-Irish treaty. Um, and I love to talk to my students in the United States about this. Would would you accept, uh, you know, if you think back to the United States or what became the United States, would we have accepted almost freedom and the space and, and the ability to work for freedom, but not full of freedom, right? It, it mm-hmm. wasn't completely an independent republic yet. Um, and so the IRA or, or the Republicans turn on each other in, in the Civil War and um, actors that now are uh, quite well known, um, like Killing Murphy, are in that. It's an excellent film. Um, other films that bring some of this historic um, material to the forefront that uh, individuals might have heard of or want to see um, things like Michael Collins, um, excellent um, uh historical explanation um more recently we uh, have seen things focused on places like belfast um there's a particularly um violent and and uh, thrilling film that came out um i think during the pandemic called 71 as in 1971 mm. that really looks at these enclave communities um and then we see things, as you mentioned, like Kenneth Branagh's Belfast uh, and obviously Dairy Girls, for instance. And one of the things I can say is um, I think they do a great job of contributing to the diverse experiences that different people felt at this time. Right. So Belfast is a specific Protestant perspective, Kenneth Branagh, mm-hmm. um, and how, how 
he as a child experienced it and ended up leaving um, kind of in the early phases versus other stories that come from the Catholic side. And then uh, shows like Dairy Girls, for instance, is really significant because, you know, not only hilarious, but it's really the first time that we've seen women's perspective. And obviously it's, you know, goofy and humorous, but it's women's perspective of um, experiences uh, in in Northern Ireland um, coming to the forefront. So these diverse perspectives um, really kind of uh, allow us some of that um, uh, almost like a kaleidoscope. We can kind of start to gain some of this uh, very diverse perspective. So I think that's that's very helpful. All right. Thank you, Steve. Again, 608-256-2001. That is the number of call. We're in conversation with Professor Kara Dempsey, author of Conflict, Nationalism and Reconciliation in Northern Ireland. Hey, Kara, we have about nine minutes remaining. Mm-hmm. Um, I Before we run out of time, I want to talk about uh, a few more of the spatial reverberations mm-hmm. of where we are today. You write a little bit about conflict tourism, mm-hmm. which... I would argue you could probably see in a lot of other places that have experienced conflict, not just Ireland. But you also talk about um, the significance of flags and the significance yes. of murals and all of these symbols. Um, tell us a little bit about those murals and a little bit about what conflict tourism is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think murals are really popular um, because not only are they quite large, um, a lot of my students are quite surprised by how big they are. In some cases, they're two or rarely but sometimes three stories high Um, and they're just right in the middle of these neighborhoods Um, and so some people have talked about their uh, open air art galleries so in many cases they're beautiful Um, but for tourism I I always um, recommend uh, to to people that ask me or or before we travel um, in a study abroad group is you know do your homework specific to um, tourism uh, conflict tourism or in um, Northern Ireland they call it post-conflict tourism Um, I I warn people to be careful one of the uh, very popular elements that really kind of occurred after the peace agreement was the so-called black cabs tour in places like Belfast where Tourists could go up to these taxi stands um, and get a um, tour of the political murals and um, an explanation of someone who lived uh, during the Troubles. Um, But they're highly uh, sectarian. And there is evidence to suggest, um, in some cases, they actually funded paramilitary groups uh, today. And so um, at best, if it's not uh, a paramilitary person or a former paramilitary driving you around, at best, you're going to get a very biased sectarian um, experience. And I've actually gone to these taxi stands and specifically asked, where would you go? And, you know, kind of in my mind said, okay, that would be very biased this way. And then you can go to the other stands and say, okay, it would be very biased in this way. Um, but that being said, it also can be a great teachable moment because when I lead study abroads, I will have some of the local peace workers lead their version of mm. tourism of the murals. And so, um, you know, if it's done kind of air quotes right, it can be a way where they talk about violence, but also new spaces of peace. And they can highlight um, there's been a lot of push recently uh, in the last decade um, to remove some of the most sectarian and the most violent. Um, both sides had paramilitary elements um, in their murals. And so to really replace those with peace building messages. And so uh, these peace building groups can gain ep- economic opportunities, bringing tourists around and really kind of celebrating. So um, as I as I tell people, just do your homework before you go. Um, and then to just really play with that idea of conflict tourism, particularly in places like Belfast. Um, another thing to keep in mind is um, for tourism, the Game of Thrones set uh, was filmed, the indoor scenes were, were filmed in Belfast. And so you can actually take, if we're playing with conflict, uh, conflict tourism, uh, you can take a tour of uh, the Game of Thrones set and then... Um, Uh, the Titanic Museum uh, has become quite popular. So there's a lot of room now for uh, celebrating the the new diverse growth um, that doesn't have to be sectarian in nature. Mm. 
Well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Well, we are just about wrapping up this show. I want to leave you to talk just for a minute or two um, to outline any common questions generated by your students Mm -hmm. because you you really do teach on this and lead Mm -hmm. field trips. I do, yeah. And I'm curious to hear um, what are the the most surprising things when you're teaching um, about this period in time um, and this conflict what do they what are they surprised when they take away and what are some of the misunderstandings that are common and how can we think about other conflicts what lessons can we take when we think about other conflicts mm-hmm. elsewhere in the world yeah that's a great question huge question yeah. 2 minutes go well uh, i'll be brief um so my students are usually dumbstruck when they go into those divided communities um by the enclaved areas, like what is still keeping these people apart? Um, And particularly if my students say we've studied Israel-Palestine. And so in their minds, they're thinking diverse languages, diverse perhaps skin color, not always, um, diverse religious backgrounds, diverse histories. And then they come into a place, say, like Northwest Belfast, where at least by initial um, you know, perspective, they're in general, I mean, there's always exceptions, but in general, we're talking about Christians. In general, always exceptions. We're talking about um, particularly white individuals mm-hmm. um, that have been living there for a long period of time. And so this idea um, I, I kind of use to talk to students about nationalism, meaning how do we identify who mm-hmm. is us and who is them? Um, and we can use that to really talk about race relations in, say, the United States, because uh, many of the structural and physical violence that, say, Catholics experienced in Northern Ireland um, at the formation of Northern Northern Ireland um, has very strong parallels with other race relations in the United States. And so it can kind of open up a dialogue there. Well, thank you so much for joining us this hour. Um, I hope you enjoy being in Madison back at your alma mater at UW. And yeah, we look forward to seeing uh, what's next for what is next for your book. For, for after this book, what are you working on now? Um, actually, uh, I'm grateful to have the opportunity. I'm working with a colleague. We're working on a collection of uh, peace building and um, conflict, uh, contemporary peace building and, and conflict uh, books. So um, okay. I'm able to build on concepts of what we call positive peace. And this is really um, when I mentioned the imperfect peace in Northern Ireland, many people say, OK, the reduction of violence is what we call negative peace. So there's um, uh, peace specialists uh, and researchers like uh, Johan Galtung or Dr. Uh, Galtung or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that said the absence of violence isn't positive peace. Um, that's negative peace. But in order to get positive peace, that's the presence of justice, equality, uh, respect and dignity of others. And so that's really what people that are working for peace building Um, are are striving for. And so I'm focusing on a group that um, also champions that uh, in Northern Ireland. Well, that's a great note to end on. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kara Dempsey, thank you so much for joining us. And... um Yeah, thanks for being here. Professor Kara Dempsey is a professor of geography and planning at Appalachian State University, where she teaches political and cultural geography in Ireland. Her book is An Introduction to the Geopolitics of Conflict, Nationalism, and Reconciliation in Ireland, published recently by Rutledge Press. Hey, you've been listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Sholly Pittman, filling in for Alan Ruff. Thanks to our callers this hour. Thanks, Steve. Thanks always to producer Jade Isiri Ramos, engineer Chuck Kademan, and receptionist Ralph today. Thanks uh, thanks to you for listening. Letters and Politics is up next. You're listening to Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.